Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. We're going off on a slightly different tangent for us today, aren't we, Charlie? We are indeed. So I'm well out of my comfort zone of all things 17th century today. And we're going, we're going to do a bit of modern history. So uh, this is after you said that any, you, if you've got handbags older than the story, then it's not history. Uh, I have been I have been very strict. I've said if I have handbags, gloves or husbands older, then it's just not history. <laughs> <laughs> but this just about qualifies then on that basis, because I know Chris isn't this old. It does. It qualifies on on this basis. It really does. So we're lucky today to be joined by Jane Johnson. She's a novelist and publisher who's been published in 26 countries. She launched the Voyager imprint of HarperCollins and she's the UK editor for George R.R. R. Martin. You might have heard of him, Robin Hobb and Raymond Feist. For many years, she worked as publisher on the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. And again, you might have heard of him as well. She even worked on Peter Jackson's adaptation of Lord of the Rings and wrote the tie-in books. I mean, that's quite, quite a project. So we're thrilled to have her with us today to discuss The Black Crescent, her latest novel and something of a personal project. Hello, Jane. Hello there. How lovely to be here. Thank you. We are we're thrilled to have you. And as I was saying before we started recording, I've been lucky enough to read The Black Crescent and to wander well out of my comfort zone. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Let's let's start at the beginning. So your starting point for for The Black Crescent was a photograph. Can you tell us about it and what made it so compelling? Yeah, I mean, when you say you were out of your comfort zone, I definitely was. <laughs> my previous novels have all been fully historical, you know, and, and including 17th century, two was set in the 17th century. So one, one in the 16th, one in the 13th. So, <laughs> so yeah, so this was, um, yeah, so coming upon a photo that was actually relevant to the book was uh, was quite unusual. And I was just skimming through the internet as you do every so often when you're feeling a bit bored mm-hmm. and uh, I was looking at old photos of old Morocco and I came upon this black and white photo which showed this really strikingly beautiful young woman um, black and white it's, she was standing in a, a setting that was clearly Moroccan arches and uh, she had a headscarf on but she was also wearing this uh, shift dress, which was open quite low uh, in a very immodest way, in, in a way that you would never expect to see on a young woman in Morocco then or now, in fact. Um, and this intrigued me. I thought, well, who is she? You know, this is this is very unusual. I mean, it's quite taboo to take photos of people anyway in Moroccan society uh, and especially of women. Uh, it's you know it's invading their privacy apart from anything else but it's also uh, it's quite insulting to do so so I just thought you know here she is you have full face with a very deep cut shift 
um, what is all this about? So I did a reverse search on, on this image um, and it threw up some history that I'd known nothing about. I mean, obviously I knew that Morocco had been a French protectorate, which is just really a polite name for a colony. Um, and, and obviously there were women working for uh, the French regime. But I had never really given a great deal of thought to the fact that there might have been women working as sex workers for the French regime. Um, and this is what she was. Uh, and I know, um, well, well, we'll get on to, I'm sure, more detailed uh, information about that later on. But this was, this was basically my starting point was, well, this is fascinating. Here is this young exploited woman in a country that is being exploited for its resources. And it, she just seemed to me to stand as a symbol for the bigger picture. Um, and I wanted to know more about her and her circumstances and who she might be. I mean, obviously there was no way of finding out exactly who she was, but it made me curious as to how I could include her in the story. It's really good, isn't it? And every now and again, I think like women's history is so marginalized for some aspects that our only choice as historians is to dream it up into history I'm thinking of Elodie Harper and her ones about the sex workers in Pompeii as well the trilogy that she's because the source material just isn't there and imagination is what we've got to try and bring back their experiences um let's just talk the reader through then or the listener sorry uh, and potentially your readers uh the book is set in 1950s Morocco what was the country like at the time so what's your setting so the book starts actually with a with a, a, a chapter set back in the 30s um, when my central character Hamu is just a boy, and so we the first glimpse we see is of a very authentic Morocco, uh, a rural Morocco in the foothills of the Anti Atlas Mountains in a little, a little village, um, and that village of Tizian is based on the village where I live on and off and have done for the last 18 years. Um, it's called Tafraud. Um, and so I wanted to show the, the readers what authentic Morocco looked like before I took them to Casablanca. Because, you know, you get a feel for the people and the place in that first chapter, which is of a very uh, rural society, which is where life has been pretty much unchanging for centuries. And then Hamu ends up in, as you say, in 1950s Casablanca, which is this extraordinary shining white city on the northern coast of Morocco, which has been created out of almost nothing. There was just a a very small settlement there and the French decided to make it their sort of show capital. Um, They just created extraordinary wide boulevards reminiscent of Paris and all this fancy architecture like Marseille. Um, and so you suddenly then find yourself, as Hamu does, displaced from authentic Morocco into this French creation on, on the coast where, you know, you would never think you were in Morocco at all until you head out of the centre towards the poor areas where the Moroccans are living in shanty towns and apartment blocks. And you see what they've been reduced to from this um, you know, bucolic life in the mountains. Gosh, I mean, my, my only sort of knowledge of Casablanca is from the film of the same name <laughs> and, <laughs> and sort of having it brought to life in the book. 
is as this real sort of cosmopolitan it kind of makes makes that that sort of position of that place make more sense in the war as almost a place for for european refugees to gather Yes, absolutely. It was really interesting, though, that, you know, not a single shot from that movie was ever shot in Africa. <laughs> it was all shot in, in the studios, and I think in Burbank. So. <laughs> it was indeed. But, That's a... So all you get is, you know, smoky interiors of gambling dens and all this <laughs> romantic and exciting background. Um, mm. Yeah, but there was certainly gambling dens and and, uh, and cafes and and uh, and places like this in in the, the morocco that the that the french recreated um it's uh, it's fascinating to see what how they did that uh, they had this sort of fantasy idea of morocco i think in you know uh, a sort of exoticism which they then imposed over certain parts of, of quarters of the city um, but then, you know, that you get authentic Morocco in the old Medina, which was the only existing part of the city that survived the rebuilding, um, which was a walled part of the city where people live in, in little cramped alleyways. And there's it's a hive of life with stalls and shops and mosques and and uh, and houses, shuttered houses, and it's a complete labyrinth. You can you can still go in there and get happily lost, as you can in in any of of Morocco's old city medinas. You know, in in Fez and Marrakesh, and you know, yeah, extraordinary places to go to go and really sort of find the true Morocco, um, with all the smells, of the cooking food, and the spices, and 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 incense everywhere. Um, so, so yeah, and it's um, so to put those two things together: the very, very ultra modern, brutalist architecture in some places, with the crumbling old kasbahs and, and and mosques of of old Morocco. I I just felt, you know, you you were seeing there a real, genuine clash of cultures, in that the French had just sort of come in and taken over this country. And, and were then reforming it in their own view of that country, as opposed to honouring the genuine roots of it. And you, you bring it to life so beautifully. Um, but let's talk about who whose eyes we, we kind of see all this through. Let's talk about um, Hamu, your your main character. He's very much torn between two worlds. So can you tell us about him? Where does where does he fit in between between these sort of two opposing places? Yeah, so Hamubadi is, uh, he's a young man from this rural village. So where he is just a naughty boy, really, he just, uh, he's a, a member of a, of a local gang who go around causing trouble. They, they break into orchards and vineyards and steal fruit. They let the donkeys go on market day so that there's chaos in the centre of the village. Um, and he's, I, I hope he's a really sort of engaging and charming young man. Um, what happens to Hamu is that he is dragged out of this bucolic paradise by the fact that his father dies young and there is nobody to provide for the rest of his family. So he, it, the responsibility falls upon him. And really, at this time, the only way to make money is to work for the French regime. He has family in Casablanca. And so uh, he is persuaded to go to Casa to, to uh, enter the uh, educational facilities there. He's a clever boy. Um, and he does well. Uh, and when we when we see him in Casa for the first time, he is uh, a young officer in the Surete, the uh, the French police force, 
Uh, and he's doing well for himself because because he's clever, he applies himself, you know, he's thoughtful. Um, I, I'm very extremely fond of him as a character because I think, you know, he is the best of all of us, really. He uh, he wants to do good. He can't do good all the time. He, you know, he has he has impulses to do other things. And, but he also wants to look after his family. And the only way of doing that is to send the money back that he, he earns every year as a policeman. And so when uh, he ends up getting promoted to fire guns officer, you know, he gets more money and he can send more money back. And he's thinking about what he can buy for his mother and sisters back home and, you know, how this will help them. But at the same time, he's thinking, but hang on here. You know, if they're giving me a gun, what are they expecting me to do with it? Um, you know, am I supposed to be using this gun on my own people? And that's the central sort of moral dilemma that we find Hamu in. Uh, he is torn between his roots um, and his national loyalties to his own country. And being at the heart of the regime, he sees everything that's going on. Um, you know, he's, he, you know, to be fair, he sees the good things that France has brought and infrastructure and education and clean drinking water and roads and, you know, he sees all that. But at the same time, because he's a policeman, he sees the oppression and he sees the violence and he sees uh, the injustices that are occurring as well. Um, and he also, you know, he sees a lot of secret hidden stuff that nobody should know about. Um, so by the time we're halfway through the book, I hope we're as conflicted as he is as to, you know, what he should be doing, how he should be behaving. Um, you know, confused by the fact also that he's uh, inconveniently fallen in, in love with his next door neighbour, <laughs> who is a young Arab woman <laughs> called Zina. <laughs> and his mother has been constantly sending him letters from, uh, from the village, not that she writes them herself because she's illiterate, but she goes to the public letter writer and, uh, and gets him to write letters to her, her son to say, do not get involved with Arab women. <laughs> <laughs> because she has plans for, for Hamu herself. You know, she's, she's trying to matchmake for him back home. So poor Hamu is torn in all directions. And, and uh, I hope we're all standing there with him going, oh, my God, what would I do? <laughs> I think we are. But we do. So this leads us nicely on to talking about those conflictions because it's not only him obviously that's conflicted uh, the book follows a few different organizations that are opposed to the French regime the first one you describe is the Istiklal um, so that's an independence party whose inception is very different to how they end up so can you tell us about them and how and why their approach hardens? yeah no the Istiklal was a grassroots or political organization that um, sprang up in the 30s in in response to uh, the oppression of the French regime. Um, it was very much a sort of socialist organisation. It was uh, they put in place their own edu educational systems for local people, um, but it was very much there also to disseminate nationalism and to try to get people on board and to educate them about um, what Morocco should have been, how, it sh how they should be resisting the French. Um, it was, but it was a very much a, a political force, uh, very diplomatic, uh, very much about persuasion and discussion. Things began to change when the French uh, exiled the Moroccan Sultan in uh, 1953. 
rather provocatively right on the eve of Eid. Um, they they just packed him and his and his household very unceremoniously off to first Corsica and then to Madagascar of all places. Um, now for the for the Moroccans, you know that is a that's an enormous deal because in in their culture the Sultan is next to God um, and very much the personal symbol of Morocco for every Moroccan. So to have your Sultan sort of whipped away from you and, and sent to you know places you've never even heard of uh, must have been an absolute shock to everybody in the country um, at this point you know the, the Istiklal is trying extremely hard to negotiate with with the French regime and to try to bring to bear political pressure and they continue to do that you know through the through the 40s and into the 50s um, but, uh, you know, when the Sultan gets uh, taken away, that, that's when we start seeing more militant factions springing up out of uh, the roots of the, of the Istiklal, uh, who feel that, uh, that the National Independence Party is simply not doing enough um, and that all the talking is not getting anywhere. You know, obviously it isn't because there's the Sultan been shipped off to Madagascar. <laughs> so, uh, so you're getting a lot more militant forces splinter groups breaking apart lots of different ones that uh, that go through their own revolutions um, and for the Istiklal this is a huge problem because they feel that if things get out of hand and if they get too violent then uh, they're just going to descend into complete chaos and war and they won't get anywhere and so we find that the Istiklal are actually starting to kill off the more extreme elements of of these of these militant splinter groups um and it is chaos and you know sometimes you don't know who's killed who you know bodies are found in back streets and you know you don't know whether it's the french regime just bumping people off because that certainly happened or whether it is actually the nationalist party trying to cleanse itself of its more violent elements um, so by the time we've got through to 1955, which is um, the main part of the book, the. Uh... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The party that the uh, splinter group that's really sort of come into force is that was first the Black Hand and now the Black Crescent, the, the uh, splinter group who make up the title of my book. And uh, they are really hard line. Uh, and, you know, there are French atrocities going on, but there are also Moroccan atrocities going on, direct action, bombings, you know, um, executions, assassinations. It is an incredibly fevered time and, uh, and Hamu's caught in the middle of it all. I mean, and so this is a splinter group of a splinter group. This is the yeah. It keeps you know, the you're not doing enough, so we're gonna we're going to get involved. What what is the aim? What what do they what do they want to do? They just want the French out. Do they do they want to punish the French? What's the, how what what's the aims of these these groups? 
for the Istiklal, um, the aim was to get the Sultan back and to move with the French hand in hand towards a more independent Morocco. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it was a it was a long term aim. Um, and for the splinter groups, it just wasn't moving fast enough. And they had the feeling that there was too much collaboration going on and that there were talks behind the scenes. And they felt that that was, uh, you know, that some members of the Istiklal just might just be collaborating with the French as opposed to actually, uh, you know, resisting them. So, yeah, no, sometimes direct action works, you know, it's uh, sometimes it's all that works. You know, when the people are not going to be persuaded by talk and patience yeah. um, and they are being oppressed, uh, sometimes when they rise up in, you know, as the French should know, <laughs> the revolution, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes it's the most effective way to change the system. But it leaves the rest of us going, oh, my God, is this the right thing to do? And uh, certainly... You know, there are it's a grey moral picture here. You know, it's it's very hard to say, yes, this is absolutely the right thing to do. But I think what for me, what was so fascinating about, you know, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist is the old saying. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you put yourself in the shoes of somebody in that situation and you think, well, OK, what would I have done, you know, in that situation if the Germans had invaded Britain and et cetera, et cetera you know, and were oppressing the local people and forcing women into sexual servitude and all the rest of it, would I have just sat back and just went, oh, well, now you're in charge, I guess we'll just let that happen, <laughs> or have joined the resistance. And if the resistance was uh, was violent, you know, then would you have done the things that they were doing? You know, it's very interesting that we we laud the French resistance against the, the Germans. And, and there is there is something made of that in the book. But, you know, as soon as as soon as the uh, tide is turned against, them, then, you know, they don't much like that liberté, égalité, fraternité. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it only works one way, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Your book really takes the reads to Morocco. And I know that one of Charlie's favourite things to read about was the new Busbia. So tell us about this area. Mm -hmm. Why is it created and who is it created for? Yeah, well, this is going back to that photo um, of the young woman in the Moroccan surroundings. Um, I, I, my, my husband worked with me on, on this book and on the research. He's Moroccan. We've been married for 18 years now. Um, a lot of this is secret history that nobody talks about. And you won't find much written down about it either, because obviously prostitution is a very shameful thing in in a Muslim country, um, even though, you know, a lot of these women were forced into into uh, sex work. Um, what the French did in creating the new Busbeer, because there was an old Busbeer in in the Medina, and it was absolutely the seedbed of revolution. So they decided they would make themselves a new Busbeer, which was uh, this fantasy Morocco. It was a walled area with beautiful uh, receding arches everywhere and colour, carpets, food, music. Um, it was like a Disneyland, a Morocco Disneyland, specifically for um, the French regime, for the people who worked for them from all different nations, for their military. Um, and it was it was like a sort of sort of holiday park based on a fantasy Morocco where they could go and eat and 
enjoy themselves wandering around, but mainly just go to find women to screw. Um, they brought in women from all over the African continent so that every taste was catered for. It's just incredible. And you really get you get such a sense of the, the seedy nature of this this sort of pleasure, pleasure village that they've built themselves in your writing. Yeah, pleasure village is absolutely the, what it was. And what was, you know, the women weren't allowed out even. You know, there was a gate, there were guards on the gate. Gosh, you know, that, that was it. That was their life. So they, there they were. Um, and they, you know, I, I saw postcards uh, f- from that era of, of, of women lounging around half clothed or hardly clothed, you know, with, with feathers and, and fruit and all the sort of things you would find in 19th century Orientalist paintings of Morocco and harems and all that sort of thing. So, you know, it was very staged, it was, but it was, you know, it wasn't nice. But <laughs> it was these women were prisoners, yeah. and uh, and you can imagine the resentment and um, the disgust that a lot of the local population uh, felt towards um, this sort of treatment. So you can you can see why tensions, why there were so many tensions. And in fact, uh, the Busbir managed to uh, the uh, Istiklal managed to close down uh, this brothel in the end. Um, and well done. <laughs> And because it really was, it was, you know, come and come and sample the local. Yeah. The local so, women. This is, it was, know, there were no, no French, no French sex workers in there. It was a, you know, it was a, that's what it was for. I mean, it was, it was, uh, yeah, no, it was exploitation. So, I mean, I'm sure there were French sex workers around the city as well, but I don't think they got shut up in the Busbeer. Yeah. And you didn't send a postcard back. I mean, just, just imagining the mentality of, this is where I've been on my holiday. Yes. This was lovely. <laughs> lovely women that I've been with. <laughs> we see how beautiful and, and compliant they are. <laughs> but in fact, you know, what was what was so fascinating for me was um, there were so many women who were at the grassroots of the resistance. They were, uh, another bit of absolutely hidden history was that uh, the women worked for the resistance. You know, they smuggled weapons and, and arms around the city because they were less likely to be searched. You know, they would they would they would put weapons, you know, under their babies in their prams, and you know, they would hide them in their robes and and extraordinary things like this. I, I read this extraordinary book called Voices of the Resistance. I mean, it exists only really as a um, as an academic paper um, by this uh, American academic called Alison Baker. And she had actually managed to get oral histories before many of these women died. She had gone around and interviewed them. And uh, it was one of the things that really sort of sparked the writing of the book for me as to how, how involved the local women of Casablanca were in the resistance movement. And you, you write about, you know, what, what happens when the, when, resistance fighter men are apprehended um by the by the police and it's it's not particularly nice would would the women have faced a similar um punishment or was it was it different oh no they would i mean they were literally risking their lives in in getting involved in any of this as well and you know and obviously also sexual degradation so 
it, it takes a great deal of, of passion and commitment to be involved in, in the resistance movement. And uh, I came away from my research feeling such admiration for these people. I mean, extraordinary commitment. It's, yeah, it's just such a, I'm, love that that woman when I did the oral histories as well so that you weren't completely deprived of these women's voices when you were writing what happens when the workers of Morocco try to call a general strike in pro against the treatment that they're receiving from the French yeah that doesn't go down I mean uh, yeah (laughs) guessing it's not great (laughs) Uh, they called strikes quite frequently through from the Istiklal started this um and they were calling strikes throughout the 20 odd years of, of the uh, resistance movement. Obviously, when general strikes are called, are called everything comes to a standstill. Um, and what, what happened was that uh, the French military and police would be called in to, um, to try and make everybody go back to work. Um, most, most of the workers were living not in lovely shining white centre of Casablanca, but in the shanty towns around the edges, the Bidonville, um, which you can still see today. You know, there are considerable air, poor areas of Casablanca. Um, they're called Bidonville because a bidon is, a, is a, a big oil can and most of the houses are made out of the hammered metal from these oil cans and just riveted together. So you can imagine what that would be like in summer. Or indeed in winter, you know, I mean, this is not a comfortable place to live, but people have got no money. Um, and so this is a, this is largely where all the workers are living. So when they call it a general strike, um, the French police descend on these areas um, and they beat people and they shoot people and they, they shut all the shops and smash up all the little shops there that people uh, use for their day to day lives. Um, and there were you know huge huge massacres and and protests during protests uh, in this way Uh, and you'd think that that would work and would quell the opposition but actually in the end uh, the numbers the numbers swelled more and more each time you know to the extent that even when after one of these uh, terrible atrocities there was a huge uh, mass funeral for the people who had been shot by the French and the French shot on the funeral as well. So, you know, you can imagine the hatred and, and the resentment of the local people just sort of coming to boiling point after, after situations like this. It's just, it's such a, it's a history that I'm so not aware of. And it really did, you know, it was, it was like being taken to a, a whole new place and sort of read, reading about this um you write so beautifully about the people um in morocco you say that they they knew how to be poor they excelled in it they had to and thinking about you know, how how lovely the name of that town sounds and it's named after oil cans i mean it's it's just incredible you mentioned that your husband is moroccan and that he he helped you a lot with this could you tell us how his recollection of Morocco growing up, how, how that helped, um, how that helped you write? Yeah, obviously, uh, Abdul grew up in, in the village that is uh, Hamu's hometown, which, you know, I call Tizian, which is in fact Tafraud. Um, 
but he had to go to work in Casablanca and he worked there for 10 years. So he knew the city like the back of his hand and he knew a lot of the history. And it's a good job because, you know, I, I was having to write about a city that I'd only really visited for uh, <laughs> a few times and largely in quite stressful circumstances because to get married in Morocco as a foreign person requires incredible uh, numbers of obstacles. <laughs> Most of them involved having to go from Tafrat, which is down in the southwest of the country, um, 700 kilometers uh, north and west to Casablanca and Rabat, which is <laughs> where all the administration goes on. So I'd only really ever sort of spent time in, in Casa, so it's been a very stressed situation, waiting to see if he got a visa, waiting um, eventually for my shipping container with all my life in it to arrive from <laughs> from London where I'd, I'd quit and, and just sent everything to Morocco because Abdul wasn't able to get a visa. And so the only way we could get married and have a life was for me to actually just go over there and move, move there. Um, but everything had changed with uh, when, the, when the resistance actually succeeded and the, the Moroccan Sultan was returned and independence was declared everything in Casablanca was renamed. <laughs> Every street name which had been which had been French suddenly became Moroccan. <laughs> so you can imagine the difficulty of trying to write a book set in 1955 where you can't um, you haven't got a map with all those names on it. I mean it's just incredibly difficult. So luckily Abdul knew his way around very well. And eventually, after a lot of uh, searching, I managed to get hold of what was basically an A to Z of, of Casablanca from 1955. <laughs> it, it came from Texas. Quite, <laughs> by, I mean, it was, and it cost an arm and a leg. But it, you know, so we had we had uh, printouts from from the uh, from Google spread all over the table, and we had this map, and we had a modern map of, of Casa as well, and we we're trying to piece everything together. Uh, I could, there's no way I could have written this book without Abdul's help. You know, he he knows the city intimately, and you know has talked to people who were involved in in the nationalist uprising, and you know, and I've seen for myself, I've seen levels of poverty in in that country that you know you just wouldn't believe. Um, even in our village, you know, where people have nothing, they just have nothing. But this is such a resilient people and they would give you their last piece of food or the last thing they owned. Um, you know, I wear every day, I wear two silver bracelets from an old lady who we visited one day um, and she made us tea and, and she looked at my bare wrists and said, oh, you've got no jewellery. <laughs> jewellery in Morocco means that you are an incredibly poor person and you know every woman wears their portable wealth on on themselves everybody wear they all wear their silver bracelets and she just took two of her beautifully buttery silver worn down to almost nothing bracelets off her wrist and, and gave them to me and you can't you cannot refuse a gift like that it's um it would be um very insulting to do so and i wear them every day i'm mean, amongst my collection on there at the moment um but you know you you cannot go into somebody's house and admire anything they'll give it to you <laughs> it's it's an absolute minefield um you know and yeah, i've experienced this with the bedouin it's like you're about to be given something halas shut up 
shut up and take it and don't <laughs> oh my goodness so was he able to to because I mean, like I say how you really do bring this this sort of world to life was he able to walk you around and say this is where this is where this was this is where this happened yeah when we had to I mean this was written during um during COVID so yeah so I was we were doing a lot of uh, Google Earth stuff but also um it's fascinating that Morocco is now a very technologically advanced country and people are very switched on on social media there are so many tour guides who who walk around old old Casablanca and talk about it and so we would sit for hours at our kitchen table just you know, walking around uh, Casablanca with them and Apple would say oh yes around the corner there that's where the prison civile is which is in the book and, and then we'd find that on on Google and have a look at that and it was absolutely fascinating it's amazing what you can do but I do think you know when you're writing about anywhere you do need to have been there. I, you know, I couldn't have written it if I hadn't actually been to Casablanca several times and had a, a general feel for the place. And, and, but to get all those details that you really need, you, you are very, very reliant on, uh, on other people and, and their, uh, their input. So well, you've got, you, you get the, certainly the, the, the smells and the tastes, uh, which I'm guessing must come sort of, I know that you're a bit of a foodie and Abdul is a chef, I believe. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I should say that this is not a book that is just, you know, about the grim uprising in Casablanca, because um, we do end up back in lovely Tiziam. Um, and that that is very much based on my 18 years of experience of what what rural Moroccan life is like, which is very, very different from city life, just as it is here. Yeah. But, um, you know, so there are but there are different problems there. And I do want you to be able to see and smell everything that, that Hamu um, sees and smells. It's, it's a country that's just so vibrant and, and so full of colour and so full of wonderful food. I, I blog about the food quite often. <laughs> and, 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 and Hamu talks about the food a lot and, in fact, is, is you know, almost ensorcelled by the food. <laughs> His downstairs neighbours keep flying him with it. <laughs> and he never really knows why. <laughs> <laughs> we should definitely have a, have a plug for your, your blog, Jane, because if, if anyone does want to read about the food, where can they follow your blog? Oh, www.janejohnsonbooks.com. Fantastic. We won't go too much into it because everyone's stomachs will start rumbling. Um, but thank you so much for coming to talk to us about the Black Crescent. The book is out 3rd of August. Alex, can we get a link to it put in our bookstore for people to buy? We absolutely can. We will shake off his to Alina and she will make it so fantastic this means that you can um if you buy the book from our bookstore you're not giving any money to jeff bezos jane gets some money we get some money everybody is happy um thank you so much jane it's been a real pleasure to talk to you thank you it was great our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book this is just a small taster as a result we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests latest books you can support them and you can support us on history hack 10 percent of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top of the line guests you can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack 
or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.